Hello, everybody, and welcome to uh, this fun little mini-series that we're doing from the Unfinished uh, Podcast channel. As most of you know, we've kind of stopped doing videos and stuff lately because, short answer, I don't have a computer anymore, so I can't do a lot of video editing. But I've managed to score up enough computer time to do this little podcast series we're doing. And I'm going to be doing this in concert with an article that I've been putting out. As most of you who've been following us know, we've been doing a little bit of publishing on Medium and stuff like that. Uh, and this new article that should be coming out with these uh, recordings is entitled, The Five Signs That Your Church Might Be Headed Off the Rails. And this has to do with all the different signs you might see when your church is falling apart. Because to be honest, they're not always what you might expect. Uh, we kind of have this mental image of things we might expect. And sometimes the signs are much more subtle and a little bit more dangerous than that. But since I know y'all didn't just come here to listen to me rant by myself uh, to you for a half an hour or so, because otherwise you just read the article and be done with it. I am joined today by my very dear friend, uh, and I'm happy to introduce her, thus the Reverend Emmy Arnold. Yeah. <laughs> the last time I got to talk in an unfinished community capacity, I was not yet ordained. And so we're still reveling in that. It's been I four know. months now and totally wild. Uh, it never gets old, does it? Nope. No, I'm a couple years into it and still didn't get old. I, I enjoy it. Yeah. Um, so uh, we talked about this a little offline beforehand, but the reason I wanted you in on this conversation is because, and I don't know if a lot of people understand that, but not all pastors are are the same in their, you know, their skill sets and focus areas and stuff like that. And you and I are good friends, but pastorally very, very different. I'm very much a mechanical sort of pastor. I'm good at kind of structures. I'm good at preaching. I'm good at a lot of the kind of the institution and the nuts and bolts of, of church building and church work. Um, and you know, well, I think I'm a fair enough hand at pastoral care. Um, that's much more your strong suit. So you come from a very different background. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say that organizational structure and sort of political group dynamics can be very challenging for me. I didn't grow up in a church background. And so church politics and organizational structures in general, honestly, are still quite new to me. I tend to think in shapes rather than lines. And sometimes that doesn't equate to a deeper understanding of the macro level in the ways that I would like. However, what I know myself to be good at is the micro level, mm-hmm. it's the pastoral care, that one-on-one interaction where I feel like I'm able to give someone my entire presence and my entire self for whatever time it is that we're together. Yeah. And that is the gift that I try to bring into my patient's room as a hospital chaplain in New York City. And that is the try that is what I try to do when I do have the opportunity to preach is to hear from the leader of that congregation, what are some of the concerns that are going on in your congregation so that my preaching can be a form of pastoral care, even though that's a more macro level thing. So I love that the two of us 
have similar hearts and different mm-hmm. manners of going about things. Yeah. And that is honestly something that a lot of people don't realize about pastors. We all have to be able to do all of those things to, to be a pastor, of course. But, you know, some of us are stronger in other areas than others. And you know, I'm you know, fortunate to have uh, a friend who is as skilled in those areas where I am uh, less skilled. Uh, and I'm, I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say you're probably one of the best pastoral caregivers I've worked with. Um, and I can be a little bit of a dick sometimes when I'm focused on some of the world building stuff that we got to do. So it, we balance each other out real well. We do. We do. Um, I'm honored to be part of this little series and to be um, getting to read some of Don's words before they hit the public. Yeah, well, that's always fun, too. Um, so what we're working on here, the five signs that your church might be headed off the rails. Um, now, we talked about this a little bit offline earlier before we get into the first point, which is what today's episode is going to be about. But, you know, church self-destruction is kind of the focus of this series of uh, articles and podcasts we're doing. Uh, and I've been in a couple of churches now where rather than just your average sort of decline where you know the members start showing up and just it doesn't represent the community anymore and eventually the door is shut where you see a church that has gone either theologically or structurally off the rails like there's some sort of corruption that's happened institutionally people have started kind of taking things for their own purposes and things start to get weird um and that's when a church starts ripping itself apart these are the churches that don't just kind of slowly decline. These are the churches that explosively self-destruct. And they, they happen a lot more often than we'd like to realize, right? Like I've seen a couple. I think you've probably seen one or two, I'm sure. At this point in my church history, I actually don't know. Because the congregations that I chose to leave are still flourishing. Yeah. They were meant for a different person from me. That's true. But for the people that they serve and the person I was at the time I was attending, they're just right. I'm not close enough to know at this point how healthy they are, but they both still seem to be very much flourishing. I'm grateful now to be exploring churches in my new area and to be able to sort of examine those things um, and still sort of looking, but I'm not actually sure if I've been part of a church that's fallen apart. And so it's really interesting to read some of these thoughts. Yeah. And this it's worth noting too that. A church that self-destructs doesn't necessarily end with closing its doors. A church that self-destructs might mutate into something wildly different from what it was designed to be, from what its members want it to be. This is how you get, um, you, you see this in denominational churches a lot, a church that will suddenly and violently split from its denomination. Um, we see this in the RCA happening actually a lot right now, but it happens in a lot of different places where this church has been part of this denomination for forever. And then all of a sudden one day, the church decides we're gone now. And at the same time, most of its membership just kind of disappears and the church kind of amorphously becomes something different, usually a non-denominational church of some flavor or variety or another, uh, because that's kind of how that works. And that is another way that this self-destruction can happen because in that case, the church has destroyed itself, but it hasn't closed its doors. It's just its membership has ripped itself apart. And now you're down to this core group of like three or four people that have decided we're not being the church that was, we're being something different. So it's almost like the church closed and a new plant happened, although that continuity still exists. Mm. Um, 
And so that is a much more common representation of that, but it does happen a lot. I've been through two myself now, uh, one that happened in the church closed and died and another that is kind of still kind of ongoing and limping along. Um, but yeah, it's normally what happens uh, when a group of people with a vision that is very, very different from the, uh, the majority of their congregation kind of seize power and force a church to do uh, what they want rather than what God and community seem to ask you to do. Uh, so the tough part about that, and this is why we're doing these discussion podcasts here, is that the signs that that's happening aren't always as obvious as we might expect. Like you think about this kind of violent self-destruction and you know, I've, I've explained it to you, you haven't really seen it as much. It sounds like it'd be pretty obvious, right? It really does. Yeah, and the tough part about it is as someone who's lived through it and has, has seen it, is that the signs that it's happening line up almost perfectly with the sort of challenges that a church regularly faces. They're just slight twists on that. So in the articles that we're putting out here, I've highlighted five signs uh, of of a church that's going off the rails. And you'll notice that, and I'm going to list these signs here in a minute, that they're all kind of things that you normally see in a church anyway. They're just a little bit different. And those five signs, by the way, uh, the first one is uh, kind of a high turnover among staff and volunteers. Uh, The second sign is uh, a lack of accountability, but a high instances of blame. Uh, the third sign is you see a rotating pulpit. Um, uh, the fourth one that we have here is the commodification of ministry. So basically a heavy service focus rather than a community focus. And the last one being an unclear identity. A lot of these things you may notice are, are very open and are things that are experienced by most churches. And in and of themselves, I don't think they're really that much problem. Uh, they're normal struggles we have to face with. But it's possible for these things to twist in just such a way where they become, I'm hesitant to use the word corrupted because we're already talking about things that are problematic, but kind of what happens. So we wind up in a situation where all of a sudden this normal struggle is um, really self-destructive for a church. Uh, and that normally happens when these, regular challenges connect with people who are um, kind of managing those challenges with their own insecurities and fears or with ill intent or destructive intents or things like that, which whether you're talking about a self-destructive church or not, I'm sure we all have experience with leaders that are rampant in insecurities and running out of their own fear-based playbook. Now that I know you've run into once or twice. Yes, I have. (laughs) Yes, I have. All right, so for today, um, we're going to start by talking about the first uh, of these signs that I've kind of laid out here, which is, I think, probably the easiest to kind of metrically track. Um, Some of these signs are pretty much just things that you have to to feel in the situation, but some of these, like this first sign, are things that you can really kind of look at numbers and say, wow, this is a thing that's definitely happening. And what we're going to talk about here is volunteers in church. Now, I mean, I know you're a chaplain, but you, you know, been going to church for quite some time. You, you know what it's like getting volunteers to do stuff in church, right? Yes. It can be tricky to track them down. A lot of people have interest, mm-hmm. but then can be tricky to get to follow through. Yeah. And sometimes it can be a little bit 
hit and miss in terms of people signing up, people showing up. And that's the reality, right? A lot of people are busy. A lot of the people who, you know, uh, volunteer for children's ministry, have their own children yeah. and their children can demand more of them than they thought. Or if you're like me, sometimes you bite off more than you can chew and are like, I want to be on five different things. And <laughs> I want to be involved and I want to be part of the church doing good in the community. And yeah. then you're just a little bit, you know, walloped by your own overcommitment. Yeah. And so it's easy to get interest, sometimes hard to get followed through. Yeah. And And your thought of high turnover among some church staff and volunteers is different. It is a little through. Now I've, I've found that most of the healthy churches I've worked with, that there's kind of a sequence that volunteers go through uh, from just being in the pews to, you know, on six different committees or what have you. Uh, it starts with interest, right? There's always somebody who's going to express a little bit of interest. Um, and then you have this, the motion from interest to commitment, which is where they agree to do a thing. And then after commitment, you have consistency. So you've got those three steps, interest, commitment, consistency. And most of a pastor's working community is taking that first step, interest, and cultivating that into kind of a commitment. And then once you've done that, the rest of your work is in making an environment where that consistency can be maintained. And in a healthy church, it's the hardest thing in the freaking world to make that motion from interest to commitment. This is why just about every church out there is like, we have such a hard time getting volunteers is because actualizing interest into commitment is tough because people have lives, you know? Churches are a volunteer-based organization, and it's tough to get people to make the motion to a regular commitment because, well, they have other stuff to do. Um, I, I know that well enough operating an online church where people, you know, that's that's our hardest challenge is getting people to move from interest to commitment. It sounds interesting, but boy, we have to actually take time to do a thing? Uh, I don't know about that. Um, so that particular piece is totally normal in churches. But once you have the commitment, it's far less work to motivate that into consistency because all you have to do is have a stable environment where people can sit in that commitment they've made and continue to make it. Um, That's not to say that it's impossible, but in a healthy church, you you work your way up the incline, uh, fighting your way uphill to that commitment point. And once you get there, you've got some rocky moments, but it's a relatively level plane from there. Uh, keeping is often easier than acquiring. I think just about every pastor has noticed that. You've, you see, I think you would probably agree with that, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So what I'm talking about here is kind of the inverse of that. And this is something that uh, if you're in an unhealthy congregation, you can probably notice pretty easily is that you have a lot of people who are expressing interest and a lot of people who are willing to commit. And that is happening relatively quickly, which is usually a great sign for a congregation. But once they commit, you got anywhere between a couple of weeks and a couple months, and they're right back out again. So people who have committed, but they're not being consistent about it. They're they're there, they're there for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, and like, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm done. I'm just not showing up anymore. Um, That is not for me. Imagining sort of 
what this church might look like, right? Like what this unhealthy church might look like. Right. And wondering sort of what goes on behind the scenes that would make it. That is, that is the thing a lot of people don't tend to think through is you know, what goes on behind the scenes. You're, you're right, I think, to, to identify that. Um, what would you think if, well, let me phrase this a little bit differently. What do you think if you were a church volunteer, what, would, what kind of things would you see that would make you after you commit say, I'm a nope out of this one? I would say a lack of appreciation for what the volunteers do would be one of them. Yeah. Um, just sort of that not noticing or appreciating because part of pastoral care is empowering people, empowering people to want to do these hard things. Nobody wants to serve as an usher. Or I should say very few people want to serve as an usher. It's but they, not, no, one, no one aspires to serve as an usher. Yeah. And if you do, awesome. I bet your church is so appreciative of that. And in ways that I can't fully understand and in ways that I imagine the pastor can't fully understand and is yet just like, thank God there's someone, right? Yeah. But so there needs to be some pastoral care for these volunteers of like, Thank you for being here. I know that your life is busy. Well, you used a word a minute ago here that I think is really important when we talk about volunteering in church, which is empowerment. Uh, Something I've long said in churches is that the volunteer system should be a process, not just simply an acquisition. A lot of churches, unhealthy churches, and this is one of the, the things we identify here, they see a volunteer as something to acquire and not something to nurture. So you get someone like, I need an usher. You're it. You're now my usher forever. And that's it. <laughs> that's, you're, you've signed up to be an usher. You're not going to be an usher for the next 45 years or until you find a different church. And what that is, is that is church leadership almost commodifying their own people saying, okay, we want you to do a thing for us. And the volunteer process, I feel, is supposed to be entirely different than that, you know, all right, you want to join our volunteer pool? Okay, we're going to start you out as an usher. But while you're doing that, now we're going to teach you how to be maybe a liturgist. We're going to, what, what do you want to learn? You want to learn how to run the audio system? You want to uh, learn how to, you know, serve fellowship and coffee afterwards? You want to help learn how to sweep the floors? You want to learn how to uh, be on government? You want to run a committee? You want to, you know, head the church's leadership team? Tell me what you want to do, and we'll start training you in the direction to do that. Um, the word is we, right? Yeah, that's the word. The word is we. We are a team. You are not a product to me. You are not a barista at Starbucks giving me my peppermint mocha. And this is something you'll find me coming back to again and again and again, uh, is we find this particularly in American Christianity, the corporatization of church leadership. Uh, you find people in positions of leadership in the church that feel we got to run our church like a business. Uh, and I mentioned this in my previous article a couple of times, you know, how we do it with finances and stuff like that. But also like with the way we manage volunteers, you're here, you may be a volunteer, but we're going to treat you like an employee. Uh, you do what I tell you. And if you don't, then you're out. You don't, none of it works that way. But that mindset, when that's how you're operating, that is where the toxicity begins. 
you start to see your volunteers as employees, as tools, as commodities, as things to fill an open spot, rather than people to be raised up, uh, taught, empowered, and helped to learn how to do more. Um, the end result of a volunteer should be someone who knows how to do all of the things in the church. By the time someone's ordained an elder, they should know how to do most every volunteer task in the church, I think, uh, or at least have a general idea. Because you've gone through, you've been in the community in all these different places. You've been empowered to live and to learn and to experience the life of the church rather than just simply stuck in a place where you'd be most useful and then left there. Um, and this extends beyond the volunteers as well. Um, you look at staff members, paid staff members of the church. Um, what kind of rotation are you seeing there? And this could be your church secretaries, uh, janitors, even pastors. Uh, what kind of rotation are you seeing from these people? Because most of these are positions that should be kind of long served. If you've got someone that's hired to fill a position and then they're immediately out the door, uh, usually with no word as to why, you should probably be asking questions about that because that's a, an even bigger red flag because the whole realm of the church structure doesn't just include the volunteers. It includes the, all the different paid staff positions that a church might have too. And you'll see this kind of increase in um, kind of rotating in and out, this increased frequency of people coming in and coming out uh, happening in multiple different areas of the church as that toxicity starts to grow. Um, and that happens when your core leadership has that same mindset of you're going to do what we think is necessary. Uh, and if you don't, then you're out, uh, which isn't how a church is supposed to, to work. There's no grace in there. Exactly. That's one other thing that I think is incredibly important for these moments when you see a lot of volunteers or staff members rotating. What was the culture in that office? Was there forgiveness? Was there the kind of, was this the kind of place that is marked by more grace than a business? Yeah. Because we as Christians are called to be a people of grace. Mm -hmm. We serve a God of love and grace and mercy. And if we don't reflect that, then we have to look at why. And if we're not reflecting that, then our organization is not likely to reflect that. Or you may be being touched by the organization's culture. Yeah. And the, the other piece of this, too, is if you're looking at this from the perspective of someone in the pews, um, the one question you can answer here is, is this happening or not? Because you can see if people and staff and volunteers are coming and going like that. That's easy enough. But if you don't have an easy answer to the question of why, that's, I think, when you should start to be worried. Like, if there's not like a real answer to this, if people are coming and going and every time you, you ask the question why, there's, there's no like, well, this person had a family emergency, this person, uh, none of that information is out there. It's just, it, it wasn't good and they left. Then you should start to be worried because now you're seeing a lack of transparency, which often accompanies this sort of toxicity. Um, either a series of blanket, like non-connecting justifications, things that don't really make sense, or just I'm sorry, we're not talking about that. It just happened. You'll have to deal with it. Um, and you'll see the latter, particularly in churches that are getting this rotation out of staff members as well. They'll be like, this happened. It's a thing. No, there will be no further information. Because this is another place where a church differs from a business in the fact that outside of the realm of information that is meant to be strictly confidential, 
um, things that are asked to be held in confidence, a lot of our operation, almost all of it, is meant to be wildly transparent. Yeah, I mean, the church is called to be very transparent in, in sometimes almost embarrassing ways, right? Like you can look up the salary of a yeah. Presbyterian pastor Same because they don't day. want to be under the table with the finances within mm -hmm. the church. Yeah. And that has some beauty to it, even though it's also uncomfortable to talk about. Mm -hmm. So there's this transparency, again, not with those like, confidential pieces of information right like I, pastoral confidence is still a thing but yes. even in cases where there's pastoral confidence the the response when asked the question why is there's some confidential stuff here i can't talk about um but you can rest assured that it is something reasonable you'll at least get an, an answer that says there is a confidence here that i can't that i can't really talk to you about you know, you'll at least get that level of honesty typically but the, the black wall of not your business, nothing to see here, move along, um, that uh, is not a sign of a healthy church. And um, you add on to that. So you start to see all these pieces, right? And you got all these changes in, in staff and positioning and volunteers. And in the center of that, this is what makes the thing most confusing for a lot of people. In the center of all of this hurricane of, of transition and change and inconsistency and instability, you've got a handful of people um, who are always there. Now, what's the instinct when you see that? Like you're, you're, you're you know, average Joe slash Jane slash appropriate non-binary phrase here, um, <laughs> sitting in the pew, uh, looking at the leadership and you see this handful of people in the midst of all this transition and they're staying the course. They're there. They've always been there. What's your first uh, instinct at seeing that? They're inspiring and they remind us what it is to be dedicated to a church in a time when so many people are leaving the church. Right. Church with a capital C yeah. in this case. However, based on this article, it might also be church with a lowercase c as in your local church. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and in the churches I've seen that have gone this way, you know, that is the thing. These people at the center of all of this change and transition, they build up this reputation as heroes of the church. They're the ones who have stayed the course. They have dedicated their time and their efforts without pause or uh, without taking a break. They are always there, always dependable. And that seems to be a great thing. And I'm not going to deny that there are people like that out there. Like, you know, I, I hope there are a lot of people like that, like that out there. But in a, in a case like this, I always kind of try to defer people to think about how humans work. Think about the, the, uh, the, the way humans work in terms of processing and considering information. What you have here is a handful of two or three people who are saying this church is good. And then a laundry list of volunteers and staff members who got in, took a look at it and said, I am out, this is not good. Um, statistically speaking, it's likely that the longer list is gonna be right about that. And when you start looking more closely, you often, and again, not always, but often will find that at the center of this hurricane of transition, these two or three heroes of the church, they actually are the often enough, the thing that all these volunteers are fleeing from. And that is something to look at. Exactly. Because uh, in cases like that, this is 
corruption in a, in a church and corruption in a business and corruption in a lot of places conceals itself under the appearance of uh, perfection, the appearance of goodness. Evil doesn't look like evil. It looks like heroic. It looks strong. It looks capable. And when you're talking about church leadership, it's often the same thing. Your leaders are going to look awesome when they're doing the wrong things. When your leaders are doing the right things, they're going to be saying, oh, God, man, I screwed this one up. I'm sorry. Uh, And we'll get to this issue later, the issue of accountability and apology and owning your mistakes. But because that's another piece of this. But that right there at the center, this this group of people who are dedicatedly heroic and never seem to do anything wrong at the center of a mass of people who are like, we don't want anything to do with this. Uh, to, to borrow from some right-wing comedians back in the day, there's your sign. And it is interesting to try to figure out how to discern yeah. between great heroes and great people who are making a great place a little bit chipped over time. And this is, this is where I'm going to say that horrible, terrible word that from our seminary days together, I know you don't like. And that word is polity. Oh no. Uh, yes. <laughs> polity, for those of you who don't know, is the, the, the basically the, the organizational structures of the church. When you're having a church that's properly organized, you're not set up to have these heroes of church leadership because your elders, your deacons, your, your members of church leadership, they have term limits. Like they're there for a time and then empowered and replaced by others. In these kind of toxic environments, you have people who are just there again and again and again and again. There's no term limits. There's no timing to that. They're just there and they look good for doing it. But as you look closer, you start to realize, well, these term limits things, they were, we have them in, in structured churches for a reason. And it's to keep people from getting, no matter how good, too accustomed to sitting in power. Yeah, because the church can become a cult of personality around a pastor and a cult of personality around the leadership team in general. Yeah. And if volunteers have stuck around long enough, they might be seen as leadership team. Exactly. And that's one of the reasons why in Protestant churches, we have that balance between a regularly rotating lay leadership and a consistent pastor, because the pastor is meant to be the long-term figure for the community. Like you're not meant to be there for a year or two and then leave. You're meant to be there long-term, but that's held in check by a rotating leadership team who keep that pastor on his toes or her toes, who keep that pastor fresh, who keep that pastor you know, under, under the eyes of the community and not just one or two particular people. And so that, as all things do in a properly structured church, they balance each other out. Uh, and it keeps that cult of personality from forming because, yeah, I, as a pastor myself, you know, you say a, a, a cult of personality forms around the pastor. Like, well, that doesn't sound so bad. <laughs> but as all of us who are, you know, by, by choice, design, or calling, set to sit in positions of any sort of power, we know that temptation. And if your system isn't set up to put checks on that temptation, even the best of people can fall victim to. Like you sit with that power unchecked long enough, doesn't matter how good you are, you're going to stop being able to differentiate between your will and God's will. Your spirit-led ministry starts to look a lot like you-led ministry. Exactly. And that's why, you know, to spare the history lesson, 
But that's why the U.S. government, when it was all hell-bent on building a system of checks and balances, stole from the Presbyterians. It's because they were pretty good at that sort of thing. You know, also the Iroquois, but that's a different historical lesson. Um, but the point is, is, you know, we're built up to be a system where power checks itself. And if you have a system here where your people are coming and going almost at random, rapidly changing positions around a central core of people who never seem to change, you, that sounds a lot like a system where power is not being kept in check because a rapidly changing slate of volunteers and staff members, you know what that is? What is it? It is a distraction. Hmm. It is something for the people to focus on that is not what's actually going on in the halls of power. Like all around this changing of volunteers, we've talked about a lack of transparency, which we will discuss more later. But, you know, the this kind of transitory nature of church staff and volunteering, it serves people who try to hold on to power in this way because it means that people aren't focusing on you. Yeah, there's a lot to think about here. Of seeing these signs that are subtle, mm -hmm. but perhaps in churches that are the most unhealthy, it's no longer subtle. Yeah, some of the most unhealthy churches out there, it's blatant, it's been going on for, for years. Um, recently served a church where that exact thing was happening. It's, you know, it, it is a thing. And the hardest part about it is, you know, I talk about this in the, in the article a little bit. We don't want this to be the thing for our own church. You know, taking the step to identify this, we, we talk about these sort of things and we're like, wow, I, would, I could see that happening in this church over there and that church over there. Wow, they all look like that. But it is the hardest thing in the world to look at our own church where we have ascribed our own identity and our own lives to which we have committed our service and say, oh, crap, this might be happening here. Because it, it, admitting that, it means admitting that we might be wrong. And as human beings, we hate doing that, don't we? I had to admit I was wrong today. And I ran from it so hard right. before I realized there was a little bit of truth in what the other person was saying. Mm-hmm. And these hard truths are not easy to look at on a personal level or on a macro level, regardless of how small that macro level may be. Even yeah. if it's just you and two colleagues mm -hmm. in an office space. Now we're thinking of an entire church. Yeah. And this is something that you know, I'm going to be talking about separately later on. But being self-aware enough to admit that we are wrong is a core component uh, of Christian discipline. Like it, it is the thing we're supposed to do. It's that, that big, scary R word, repentance. Oh God, we hate that word. Um, but that's really what that, a lot of that means is being able to look at and say, oh yeah, yeah. I, I don't want to admit it, but I definitely screwed that up. Uh, and on a micro level, when we hear the R word, we think about our own sins, the different ways in which we've personally screwed up. But that can also be part of the institutional process as well, something congregations can do to look at themselves as a, as a, as a unit and say, oh, are we the baddies? To, to bring that reference into play there. Yeah, for those of you out there who are listening, out of curiosity, sort of if your church, 
maybe an unhealthy church and you have the power to help change it, looking in the mirror and saying, oh shit, and being able to adjust the course before yeah. the ship is aground mm-hmm. is a beautiful thing, even though it's hard. And if, if you are listening and wondering if your church or wherever it is that you're doing leadership is facing this, oftentimes a denominational structure or uh, an organizational structure will have some sort of career coaching available. Yeah. And, you know, within denominational churches, especially, this is one of the reasons I write hard for denominations still, even though, you know, a lot of people say that they're on the way out. Um, Denominations, if you're in a denominational church that's experiencing this and your church leadership is not being helpful, like you can go to your regional assembly, classes, presbytery, what have you, then there's likely to be someone there who can, uh, perhaps not in an official capacity, but at least give you some advice on how this might be approached or at least look into it. Because those of us in denominational Christianity, we thrive on that big A word, accountability. We are accountable to each other in belief and practice. That's kind of what this whole organized church thing is about. So if you're in a denominational church, you can and should do that if you have questions about the way your church is, is operating. If you're not in a denominational church, that can be a lot harder. In that case, one of the things I always recommend to people um, in a lot of situations is you can just walk away. Um, that, that's a thing you can do. And in a church you're invested in, particularly if it's not a denominational church, if it's gone off the rails like this, you can walk away. Um, and if that's where you need to be for your mental health, don't be afraid to do that. However, if there's no help coming, there's no denomination, there's no one else who's going to provide that accountability, it is up to the congregation to do that. Uh, And if everybody walks away from the problem, then what's gonna happen is your congregation is gonna start shrinking and losing members and losing members until all that's left is the eye of that hurricane that was the problem in the first place. So if if you are in a non-denominational or uh, otherwise unaffiliated church that's dealing with these sorts of problems, I hate to tell you, the solution is you. Hmm. Uh, That's a a hard enough to swallow because it often means uh, that there may be, if you want to help the church, there may be some confrontation in your future, uh, which is a really, really uncomfortable thing to do, particularly for us Christians, because we don't like confrontation all the time. Uh, Some of us do. Some of us are pretty good at it. Oh my. Some of us argumentative American types don't really mind it quite so much, but for the most, most people don't like confrontation. And like, I, I get that. Um, but, you know, not to get too Ecclesiastes on you, but for everything, there is a time and a purpose. And situations like these, that's kind of where conflict, uh, grace-filled conflict, compassionate conflict, caring conflict, which are things that can happen. And I could dedicate an entire another podcast to uh, those things. I think that's what the time is for them. Amen. I'm sure you could tell us a lot about what grace-filled and compassionate conflict looks like. I wish I had more examples of it. (laughs) Yeah, I think we all wish we had more examples of it. But I I think the idea is, uh, I'll use this kind of the note I want to end on here is, when I talk about stuff like this, like identifying problems within a church, 
it's really easy for us to get into that kind of heroes and villains mindset, you know, to identify the corruption at the heart of our church and say, okay, there's the bad guys. Let's get them. Um, and whether you're on the side of what's right or whether you're on the side of what's wrong or somewhere in between, settling into that mindset is really, really easy. Um, but the Christian way of handling conflict, and this is what I always try to advise people, before you go into any situation, this is what I do. I've got an adorable, absolutely adorable slate of kids. Uh, I got three of them. Uh, my youngest is, is four, and he is aggressively cute. And I can confirm all of this. <laughs> but what's more than aggressively cute is he is optimistic and unashamedly loving in the way he approaches life. Um, everything he does, whether that is, you know, asking for another piece of candy or beating the ever living hell out of his older sister, uh, all comes from a place that in his heart is like, I just wanted to do a thing and get attention and be loved. And when you call him on it, when he does, like, say, beat the hell out of his older sister, you sit him down and you say, hey, you did a wrong thing. And it, you, you're the bad guy here. Goes, but I just wanted attention. And you can see in the moment that, like, he's not an evil person. Like, he's a four-year-old, right? He, all he wanted was to be loved, and he wasn't getting the love that he needed. And so he lashed out in a way that was inappropriate because he didn't know any better because he's four. Um, and the unfortunate truth, and the thing I know we all hate to admit, we're all basically four-year-olds that have a bigger vocabulary and occasionally guns. Um, unfortunately, often a big overlap between Christians and the kind of American nationalism that involves gunslinging. Well, there's a whole other conversation there. Yeah. But the point is, no matter how evil a person is being, there's really no such thing as a mustache twirling supervillain here. Everybody, I think, even the worst of us, is operating out of that four-year-old logic of, I just wanted to, to love and be loved in return, and I wasn't getting it, and I didn't know how to handle it, so I did this thing because it seemed right. And when you go into these moments of, of conflict, I think for myself, and this is sometimes it's a discipline. Like it, it doesn't, this is not a thing that comes naturally. Sometimes I have to really force myself to do this. I look at the other person and I imagine that they are my son who just beat the crap out of his sister and was like, I just wasn't getting loved the way I wanted. Because nine times out of nine, that's what's going on here. It's important to add that note of compassion of the reality that all of us are trying to love and be loved and each of us based on our past experiences, you know, we can go ahead and call them sometimes adverse childhood experiences. We all have twisted understandings of what it is and what it will mean to love and be loved. Like I, even though I have sort of a soft understanding of sin compared to classic Presbyterians, I do believe in generational sin and in generational sin cycles of the negative traits we inherit from our family and what will we do to break that cycle. But it can make it very challenging for us to understand or get along with people who are really struggling with that actively, who yeah. haven't done that reflection work. Mm -hmm. uh, why am I getting so angry 
when someone disagrees with me? Yeah. Or why do I want to run right now? Or why am I trying to make everything so obfuscated yeah. if we're talking about, you know, trying to reduce accountability if you have an unhealthy church? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is why when we talk about this sort of stuff institutionally, you find me using the word corruption a lot, um, which I like because it sounds really cool, but also it isn't a word that denotes evil. It's a word that denotes something positive that has been twisted, which is at the heart what we're dealing with when we talk about churches that have gone off the rails like this. We're dealing with some, usually a group of people, but often just an institution, often within that institution, a group of people who have at their heart the best of intents but those intentions have been twisted by personal tragedy, by experience, by frustration, by any number of different things. Um, so that their good intents are being pulled off in a different direction and made something else entirely. Um, and that's what I mean by corruption because that's what the word means. It means something that is innately good that is being bent, that is being pulled away from, from the intent, which is literally how all sin works. Um, so, you know, that's, that's where I want to end. And that's what I want us to keep in mind as we think about what we talked about today, as we think about the next uh, entries into this series is what we're talking about here is corruption. It's uh, a bending of something that is inherently good in people and people who are inherently good. Uh, sorry, my watch decided to chime in on that one for a minute. Um, but that's what we're talking about. We're talking about like, inherently good people with inherently good intents who have gone off the rails for any number of different reasons. And as fellow Christians who want to succeed together, it's our job to provide that kind of accountability in love and not to to approach them as as an enemy, even if they are acting like one in the moment. I think that'll do for for today. Any last words for us, uh, Emmy? I don't think so at this time. Other than to pray for your local churches. Yeah. Lo- local churches are trying to do a lot of a lot of good work, especially post-pandemic or semi-post-pandemic as we kind of are. Um, churches out there are trying to do a lot of good. And in a, in a new world where it's kind of hard to figure out what church is, it can be difficult and very easy for these kind of corruptions to flourish in this kind of environment. So pray for your local churches uh, and be part of your local churches and you know, where necessary, help keep them accountable. That's, and when necessary for your own health, leave. If you have to, absolutely. So that being said, um, we're going to call it for today. Uh, those of you who listened through to the end, I want to thank you for, for listening in. This is part one of a series of five. Uh, next, we're going to be talking about our second sign, which is about... Um, uh, visible accountability and the prevalence of a blame culture uh, within an institution, which we touched on a little bit today, but we're going to dig in deep a little more on in the next episode. So if you want to know more about what that looks like, or just enjoy hearing the the two of us rant about this sort of stuff, keep an eye out. That'll be be dropping reasonably soon, along with the article uh, entry itself. Um, If you have any questions, if there's anything you want to talk about, please, I want to invite you to reach out. 
this uh, podcast is being produced as part of Unfinished Community, which is uh, my church organization, which is an online kind of open sort of, uh, of church without a physical location. I'm here in Japan, but we've got people in this one from around the world. I'll leave links in the description if you want to check it out. If you have questions, my email will be down there as well. We run everything off of a Discord server. So if that's your thing, uh, or if it's not really, come come jump in. Like we would love to have you there. We're just, we're having these discussions there on the Discord server in real time with all the members of our community and stuff like that. So if you want to be a part of that conversation, jump in there. It's really easy to learn and I really do recommend it. Um, other than that, uh, just know this week that uh, I'll be praying for you wherever you are and that I'm thinking about you and I hope you have a wonderful week. Take care.